You're on. Are we on? on? We're all on? Okay. So one of the things I want to say before giving this entirely to Bob for him to both teach and lead us in a discussion is uh, when I uh, was thinking about him coming, I remembered out of the blue, you know how sometimes it is in your memory bank, you remember a particular incident a long time ago that somehow, late, this is probably two decades later, it's 2014, my guess is 2004, 94, maybe a little bit more, maybe early 1990s. So more than 20 years ago, uh, it was a time when uh, lots of new teachings, meditative teachings, both in Buddhism and in other traditions were coming to the United States. Everybody was doing everything with everybody and trying this and trying that. And there were also among the many extraordinary experiences that people had. Uh, sometimes people got involved with a tradition that, or a teacher that did not turn out to be so good. And it was a topic of conversation at some meeting. It might have been in Esalen, a meeting of the Association for Transpersonal Psychology. It might have been at an international Dharma teachers meeting that I was just starting to be invited to in those days. And I was on a smallish group, a subset of those meetings, that was uh, attempting to draw up guidelines for what to look for as you chose a Dharma teacher for yourself. What, what guidelines so that, especially if there were uh, culture changes between teachers and children, what were the guidelines that no matter what and where one should check out with a Dharma teacher? What would be important to know about them? And, I remember, and we sat down and, and people were saying, well, you know, how can you pick out those things that would be most important. And somebody else said, well, there are some things that really are extraneous. Like, you, I, I wouldn't be interested in whether or not the person I was considering taking on as my teacher recycled. And I thought to myself, at that moment, I thought I would, actually. <laughs> that that would be a criteria, you know. And I'm sure that, and I don't remember who it is. I wouldn't tell you if I remembered. But, you know, it was at that moment, in that moment for that person, that seemed quite out of the blue. You know, what's their experience? What's their background? What's their meditation? What's their insight? But I, it was clear to me that if we have an insight about how we are connected to each other in this planet, we are one breath away from recycling. You can't you cannot chuck away a can without without thinking, what is this going to mean about breathing somewhere, somebody? So uh, not to say uh, not to say how great I was in being prescient at that time, but to say how clear it is to me that we are one breath, one thought, one millimeter away from that awareness any time we are woken up, I think. And more and more now. Who shares with me dismay? They get up every day and it's not raining. Yeah, everybody. So Bob Doppelt, you know, among his many things in, in his book, From Me to We, 
and it says what he is the executive director of the Resource Innovation Group, a sustainability and climate change education resource and technical assistance organization affiliated with the Center for Sustainable Communities at Willamette University, where he is also a senior fellow. He is also an adjunct instructor in the Department of Planning, Public Policy, and Management. This is mostly for the for the for the CD, for the recording there, and the University of Oregon. And from 2002 to 2010, he directed the Resource Innovations and Climate Leadership Initiative in the Institute for a Sustainable Environment at the University of Oregon. His training and expertise is in counseling psychology and ecosystem science. He's also a very long-term, very long-term Dharma practitioner and a very long-term, and from our point of view, maybe the most exciting piece of news about you, he's just a long-term close friend of James Barras. So <laughs> in terms of, you know, qualities, that puts you, that goes right on the top. James's friend, okay. So James's friend will now teach, and I'll sit here. And, uh, and I've assured him that uh, we'll listen and that we are also the kind of group where if you suddenly miss some point and want to say something, you make yourself known. Think of this as a class, not as a, as a presentation. It is a presentation, but also a class where you can say, hey, I didn't get that point. Okay. Great. Well, thank you. And it's uh, wonderful to be here and <laughs> with you. And, uh, uh, thank you for that long introduction. Uh, appreciate it. Um, let me actually start by asking you how many. Um, well, you have to push we're that. We're not on. Uh, push what? This? Is Where a better? green light will come on. Um, did not agree. Yeah. Huh. Why isn't a green light coming on? Oh, do I? Oh, because I have the wrong thing. That's because you have the wrong thing. Now, try that. But then you have to push the other thing. <laughs> now you have is to push. Better? No, no, it's not better. No. Now it's is that better? better? Yes. <laughs> well, this is a prime example of climate change. <laughs> Lots of changes going on, and we really don't know what's happening, right? You know. So, um, and uh, it is true. Uh, James and I actually. James was one of my. James Baraz was one of my first uh, meditation teachers, and we were trying to figure it out. I think it was 1984. Uh, but, uh, up at a place called Brighton Bush in, in Oregon. So, and but we lost contact with each other for many many years, and until recently. So it's nice to have reconnected. Uh, but I've been coming to Spirit Rock for many years um, and and practicing uh, these issues. Uh, let me start by asking you just how many of you think you're actually part of the Earth's climate? Can somebody explain how you are part of the Earth's climate? Go ahead. Well, practically everything we do or don't do has an effect on climate. Okay. So whether we recycle, just the population, everything. Mm -hmm. Absolutely true. Anything else? Um, how far away our food is that we eat, mm -hmm. where, where it came from, and mm -hmm. how long it took, how it got here. Mm -hmm. Thank you. There you go. <laughs> so those of you who are having hot flashes, you are, we need to deal with that. Anything else? My wife and I talk about that all the time. Uh, okay. All right. 
Now, uh, let me re-clarify the question. How many of you think you are part of the climate as opposed to affecting the climate? Okay. Anybody want to take that and go ahead? You breathe. Exactly. So how does that, why are you part of the climate when you breathe? Oh, we are, we are releasing, you know, we're, we're taking in, you know, what's the present and releasing into the environment. So what are we taking in? We're taking in oxygen. We're releasing carbon dioxide. Right. Okay. Aren't we warming up the oxygen that we breathe in as we breathe it out? You are, but you're breathing out CO2. Yeah. Where does the oxygen come from that you're breathing in? Plants. Plants? You sure? This is a trick question. About 75% of the oxygen you're breathing is created through a process called photosynthesis in marine environments. The estuaries and the oceans, and the other 25% is the same process in the vegetation all around you. So every moment that you're alive, every breath you take, as Sylvia was saying before, is the result of complex interactions occurring all around the planet. And every moment we take to become aware of that, we do not exist except for these complex interactions. We are just part of it. And the same is true every time you exhale. You're exhaling CO2. What happens to that CO2? That's right. It is those other processes that absorb and break down and turn it into oxygen and other processes. So we're just part of the natural cycle, all of us, although we live in this illusion that somehow we're separate, uh, that somehow we're independent. We exist independently of these processes. So I, it, whenever you believe you're an independent, freestanding entity, I invite you to do one simple thing. Hold your breath for three minutes. <laughs> and see if it works, okay? Then you realize we are completely and utterly part of, we're not separate from, it's not that we influence the system, we obviously do, and we are, but we're actually a part of it. And unfortunately, what's happening because we are a part of the system and influence it through our behaviors um, is that uh, we're, we've really dramatically changed the Earth's climate. And that's what I want to talk to you about a little bit today, what's happening with the climate. And most importantly, I'm going to talk about the process that Sylvia was talking about, and that is the, the Dharma teacher's efforts that's underway here. But I first want you to at least understand uh, uh, what's going on. Um, for, uh, uh, for about 10,000 years on a planet, from what we can tell, but let me back up a little bit more. After that long and nice introduction by Sylvia, I'll give you the short form. I, I direct a climate change research program. We're actually now a nonprofit. We spun off, affiliated with the university, but we are social scientists that work with the biophysical scientists, and we work all across the, the world on these issues, mostly in the U.S., but also internationally. And so we're, I have a pretty good sense of where the climate science community is on these issues. So lots of stuff goes on in the press and arguments back and forth about what's happening, et cetera. That's just all political theater. I, I wouldn't pay much attention to that. Uh, what, what we do know is for the past 10 to 12,000 years, um, the Earth's climate has been relatively stable. There's always a little change in it, but uh, it's pretty been, been pretty stable, and that's what it's allowed 
human civilization to develop. Uh, it's that 10,000 years of, uh, of uh, that's when agriculture began to develop, et cetera. Uh, and in that 10,000 year period, the, uh, the uh, concentration of CO2 and what we call CO2 equivalents, uh, greenhouse gases, methane, carbon dioxide, nitrous oxide, et cetera, uh, has been about between 200 and 280 parts per million, the mixture of these gases with pure oxygen. And that's what's kept the, the Earth's uh, climate relatively stable. Sometimes we've cooled more, sometimes we've warmed a bit more, it's gone up and down. Usually that has to do with the Earth's cycle around the sun. We move a little bit away, we move, the Earth moves a little bit closer, we move away, it gets a little cooler, closer. Those are natural processes that take, take place over thousands of years. Um, but now we are, the, parts, the concentration of atmospheric greenhouse gases is up to 400 parts per million um, and rising very quickly. What is that, 40-something percent increase? Uh, go ahead. Uh, I've always wondered why is it called greenhouse gases? I'll explain that in a second. Okay. Good, good question. Um, the, uh, we, we know the, the green, the, the, those parts per million... Actually, the, the greenhouse gases mix with pure oxygen and envelope the Earth uh, and form a blanket around the Earth. So some of the radiation that's coming from the sun comes through this, this blanket of gases that surrounds the Earth and hits the surface of the Earth. Some of, is absorbed by the oceans, by vegetation, etc., and other, uh, most of it is actually reflected back out away from the Earth. And some of it is captured by this blanket of greenhouse gases that goes around the Earth. So you've got this radiation, this heat going up. Those gases capture it. Other gases are released. And that the right concentration of greenhouse gases at 200 to 280 parts per million has been capturing just enough heat to make life livable on this planet. So now we're at 400 parts per million, adding more blanket capacity, if you will, another blanket, if you will, around the Earth, which is heating the Earth's surface. We're capturing more heat here. Now scientists, all the scientists that I work with in NOAA have tried their everything they can, looked at every possible uh, option to say, how is this happening? It can't be humans. Maybe it's natural. Maybe it's the sun. Maybe it's this and that. And uh, every one of them has been discounted. Uh, we know it's us. Okay, that, that the word that the scientific community uses, it's unequivocal. Now, unequivocal in science means it's 95%. Nobody, no scientist will ever say 100%. When I hear a scientist say 95%, I say, okay, I'm not going to worry about whether there's any question anymore. Um, uh, based on the best science we have, that's, that's what we, we know is the case, and, and it's caused by two dominant issues. One is the use of fossil fuels, coal, oil, gas, uh, uh, and other forms of fossil fuels, shale oil, etc. Burning them releases uh, uh, CO2 into the atmosphere. Uh, and also uh, inappropriate land management activities where we've cut down a lot of forest, we've converted forest to agriculture, uh, we paved over a lot of areas, so the sun doesn't get the, the heat doesn't get captured here. It gets it just gets um, uh, reflected back, in, in, uh, and we lose the the capacity to hold the heat. Um, so we have a problem of too much greenhouse gases occurring, 
that are human caused and insufficient sequestration, as we call it, the inability of the Earth's ecosystems to hold and sequester the carbon here. Uh, and uh, what we are on is a path uh, towards uh, six degree Fahrenheit temperature increase by the end of the century and likely much, much quicker than that. And that's two degrees, roughly two degrees centigrade. And that is basically the end of human civilization. And that's because we live in a very narrow temperature envelope. So think about your own body. 98.6, most of us were a little up and down from that. You get a one temperature degree increase, you don't feel so good, right? What happens if you get a three or four temperature degree and it persists for a long period of time? Not a good thing, right? The Earth is actually the same way. All living organisms uh, are that way. Uh, and that's the problem we have on our hands, um, that we are without some very significant, big, and rapid changes. We are heading for some very rough times ahead. And, and I hate to say this, and I, I don't want to depress you. We will end with uh, a little exercise, I hope, that helps us uh, address these issues. But uh, even if we do take some very rapid, dramatic steps, we are still heading for some very, very rough times because we're already at 400 parts per million concentration of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. Uh, the, uh, and it, those gases last 100 to 200 to 300 years. The legacy of fossil fuel systems we have around the Earth uh, are not going to go away real quickly, meaning we're going to put more into the atmosphere no matter what we do. Uh, we're, likely going, we're probably going to hit 450 parts per million no matter what. Um, and we now realize that actually to keep temperatures below the level that, that we trigger runaway climate change, we have to be at about 350 or less parts per million. So we're already above that. It's not that we're heading to problems. We're already in the problem. And the reason for that is the, uh, the, the impacts you see of climate change, like the more frequent and extreme weather we're seeing all across the world, that we're seeing now is the result of what happened in the 50s and 60s, the emissions then. The emissions we're generating today, the impacts are going to show up 20 and 30 years later. Okay? People don't, it's hard to understand all this, but, but that's sort of the reality. So, uh, so we have a real challenge on our hands uh, to not only bring down greenhouse gas emissions by 90% or more, we actually have to withdraw or suck CO2 out of the atmosphere and bring it back down to 350 parts per million. So when you think about increasing your energy efficiency in your home or your vehicles by 15, 20%, that's all great. That's a very, very good start. But it actually, you're still putting 80%. You know, you've reduced from 100% to 80. 80% of that greenhouse gases is still adding to the problem. We actually have to withdraw it. That is, go downwards. Uh, so we have a real serious, significant challenge on our hands. Um, uh, and if climate change is uh, not a, a Dharma issue, therefore, I don't know what is. Uh, it seems to me that the Dharma can teach us 
all that we, everything we, we actually need to know, if you will, about the causes of climate change. And it says a lot about the path we need to take to address this issue. Um, the, before I talk about how the Dharma teachers have engaged in this, let me just say one other thing, and that is that so far we've let the, uh, there's been two focuses in climate uh, uh, activities in my organization, and I've been played a big role in these, and I've sort of now realized we, we've sort of missed the boat. We haven't really captured the whole picture. The first has been on emissions reductions, uh, and mostly that's been focused on allowing the experts, quote unquote, to take that issue on. And the experts, which traditionally have been engineers and biologists and others, uh, uh, have focused on predominantly technological solutions. That's what they're trained in, that's what we think about. So more energy efficient vehicles and uh, better uh, insulation in your homes, et cetera, all of which is very, very good. Um, but by focusing on allowing, believing that the experts will solve this problem, and focusing on these mostly technological solutions, we've essentially ignored or allowed ourselves not to have to deal with the underlying drivers, which are our individual and collective cravings, our delusions about the way the world works, our beliefs that more and more material wealth and power will bring happiness, all of the the, the basic mental factors that the Buddha talked about and the Dharma talks about are at the root of why we have climate change today. And when we actually get to that level, we realize the experts aren't going to help us on that. That's about all of us, right? We have to deal with this, and then we have to go and become the experts ourselves and engage in that issue. So I was... Um, uh, uh, invited by James Braz, my old companion, uh, to come down here to Spirit Rock with the International Teachers, the, the Vipassana Teachers Conference that happened last June to hold, I guess it was the first session on climate change that they've ever had. Uh, and we had a discussion, uh, and out of that process, 30 teachers started to work together. I've been sort of facilitating the process, but it's definitely been the teachers group. And these are teachers from Africa and Europe and U.S., Canada, and actually a few in Asia, um, trying to figure out how to engage our sanghas, you and others, uh, in this issue, and just as importantly, how to infuse the Dharma into the public debate about climate change, because it's not there at all. Again, the focus is on the experts and technological solutions, et cetera, et cetera, um, and what's missing in that debate is, well, what about us? You know, there, and also, what about the suffering that our activities are causing now and in the future that, of course, are, at their root are caused by the suffering we all feel um, and are, are not dealing with ourselves very successfully sometimes, so we're, we haven't dealt with the cravings we have and the delusions we hold. All of those issues we really felt we needed to address. So after six months, I don't know if you've ever facilitated a, uh, an effort among 30 different people uh, trying to get uh, joint statements written. Um, uh, it's very much like chasing cats all over the place, and, it's, uh, and from different cultures, no less, 
who even see words and phrases to mean something different. Um, but we developed a statement that I'd like to read to you now uh, that all 30 of the teachers signed. We then put it on a website called One Earth Sangha. Uh, and, and I encourage you, if you're interested, to look, just Google it, One Earth Sangha. It's out of Washington, D.C., and it's actually a, a Sangha member that works with Tara Brock there who put it together, another Dharma teacher. And now about 150 Dharma teachers from around the world have signed it, uh, as well as, I think, about 100 Sangha members. So it's open to anybody who is, any individual who practices the Dharma or, or mindfulness uh, to sign, if you're interested. And it has two goals. The first goal is to help all of us, uh, the Buddhist community, the mindfulness community, and other spiritual, tradi spiritual traditions, understand what the Dharma can uh, uh, tell us about the root causes of climate change so that we understand what's going on and that we can engage in solutions. This is not just an intellectual exercise. This is about engaging all of us in solutions. And the second, as I said, is then to have, uh, encourage or inspire Sangha members and others to engage publicly in this issue, to make uh, the Dharma part of uh, the public debate about climate change so we move towards solutions beyond our own individual lives. So let me read this. Um, before I go on, any questions, any thoughts? Is it Very bracing, this whole thing. You feel scared? Yeah. What? With the population growth in the world now, the 8 billion people, and everybody is exhaling, inhaling. I mean, just that alone, with, with nothing else, isn't that judgmental? Uh, well, so, very good question. Thank you very much. It is not, you are part of the climate just by your breath, but your breath is not creating climate change. That is to say, there is a natural carbon cycle that has existed for 10,000 years that, you know, breathing in and out and photosynthesis and all that is part of. The problem we have, and, and because there's a natural amount of carbon that's been recycled over and over and over again, what this problem is caused by is there's a whole lot of carbon that's sequestered in the ground that is not part of that carbon cycle that happened over millions of years We've dug that carbon up, burned it, basically coal, oil, those fossil fuels up. By burning it, we've turned it into to CO2 and released that into the atmosphere. So it's the stuff in the ground that we've now re-released. And in fact, human life or life on Earth didn't really exist until most of those uh, toxic materials, basically, were sequestered in the Earth's surface. That's when the first green cells existed, showed up. And we're basically, many scientists say, we're reversing evolution here. We are re-releasing the toxicity in the into the atmosphere that prevented life. Uh, and we're not even aware of what, of what we're doing because we haven't understood the, uh, the way the, the Earth works or we have understood it and decided to ignore it and deny it. Uh, and that's, that's the challenge. Now, I'm going to read this statement, but then I'm going to talk about solutions because there are solutions. Uh, and in fact, uh, every one of us can make a big difference. I think this problem is, uh, I won't say solvable, 
but I'll say we can reduce it to manageable levels. And I'm pretty confident we will uh, if we make some big changes. And that's why we're trying to make this statement. So let me read this statement. Again, signed now by 150 uh, uh, Dharma teachers. It's called The Earth as Witness, International Dharma Teachers Collaborative Statement about Climate Change. Today, humanity faces an unprecedented crisis of almost imaginable magnitude. Escalating climate change is altering the global environment so drastically as to force the Earth into a new geological age. Unprecedented levels of suffering of all life on Earth, including human, will result. Significant reduction in greenhouse gases and other actions will be needed to reduce climate change to manageable levels. But more fundamental changes are also needed. And this is where we can draw guidance from the rich resources of the Buddha's teaching, teachings the Dharma. This statement briefly describes core Buddhist insights into the root causes of, clim- of the climate crisis and suggests ways to minimize its potentially tragic consequences. As a starting point, the Dharma states that to formulate meaningful solutions to any problem, we must first acknowledge the truth of our suffering. As shocking and as painful as it may be, we must recognize that without swift and dramatic reductions in fossil fuel use and major efforts to increase carbon sequestration, global temperatures will rise close to or beyond 2 degrees Celsius, that's 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit. This increase will lead to injury and death for millions of people worldwide and the extinction of many of the Earth's species. Millions more will experience severe trauma and stress that threaten their physical, emotional, and psychological well-being. These stresses will, in turn, trigger social and political unrest. In a grave injustice, low-income communities, poor nations, and people systematically subjected to oppression and discrimination who contributed little to climate change will initially be harmed the most. Even worse, as frightening as it is, if we fail to make fundamental changes in our energy, manufacturing, transportation, forestry, agriculture, and other systems, along with our consumption patterns, with utmost urgency, in mere decades, irreversible climate shifts will occur that undermine the very pillars of human civilization. Only by recognizing these truths can we adopt a meaningful path towards solutions. That's why I started with the honest truth. We have to acknowledge the truth of our suffering. The Dharma teaches us the origin of our suffering. The majority of the world's climate scientists are unequivocal that on an external physical plane, climate change is caused by the historic and ongoing use of fossil fuels and the greenhouse gases they generate when burned. Destructive land management practices such as clearing forests also contribute by reducing nature's capacity to sequester carbon. The Dharma informs us, however, that craving, aversion, and delusion within the human mind are the root causes of vast human suffering. Just as these mental factors have throughout history led to the oppression, abuse, and exploitation of indigenous peoples and others outside the halls of wealth and power, craving, aversion, and delusion are also the root causes of climate change. Climate change is perhaps humanity's greatest teacher yet about how these mental forces, when unchecked in ourselves and in our institutions, 
cause harm to other people and the living environment. Led by industrialization, the desire for ever more material wealth and power has resulted in the reckless destruction of land and water, excessive use of fossil fuels, massive amounts of solid and toxic waste, and other practices that are disrupting the Earth's climate. However, by acknowledging and, address and addressing the internal mental drivers, we can begin to resolve the external causes of climate change. The Dharma offers hope by teaching us that it is possible to overcome the detrimental forces of craving, aversion, and delusion. We can use the climate crisis as a catalyst to acknowledge the consequences of our craving for more and more material wealth and the pursuit of power and realize we must change our assumptions, attitudes, and behaviors. We can use the climate crisis as a catalyst to educate ourselves about planetary processes so we understand that the Earth has ecological limits and thresholds that must not be crossed. By learning from our mistaken beliefs and activities, we can create more equitable, compassionate, and mindful societies that generate greater individual and collective well-being while reducing climate change to manageable levels. Finally, the Dharma describes a pathway of principles and practices we can follow to minimize climate change and the suffering it causes. The first principle is wisdom. From this point forward in history, we must all recognize that the external causes of climate change, the, excuse me, we must all acknowledge not only the external causes of climate change, but the internal mental drivers as well and the horrific consequences. To be wise, we must also individually and as a society, adopt the firm intention to do whatever is necessary, no matter what the cost, to reduce the climate change to manageable levels, climate crisis to manageable levels, and over time, restabilize our planet's climate. The second Dharma principle is ethical conduct, which is rooted in the compassionate concern for all living beings in the vast web of life. We need to make a firm moral commitment to adopt ways of living that protect the climate and help restore the Earth's ecosystems and living organisms. In our personal lives, we should recognize the value of contentment and sufficiency and realize that after a certain modest level, additional consumption, material wealth, and power will not bring happiness. To fulfill our moral responsibility, we must join with others, stand up to the vested interests that oppose change, and demand that our economic, social, and political institutions be fundamentally altered so they protect the climate and offer nurturance and support for all of humanity in a just and equitable manner. We must insist that governments and corporations contribute to a stable climate and a healthy environment for all people and cultures worldwide now and in the future. We must further insist that specific, scientifically credible, global emission reduction targets be set and means adopted to effectively monitor and enforce them. The third Dharma principle, and the one that makes all of the above possible, is mindfulness. 
This offers a way of, to heighten our awareness of and then to regulate our desires and emotions and the thoughts and behaviors they generate. By continually enhancing our awareness, we can increasingly, no increasingly notice when we are causing harm to others, the climate, or ourselves, and strengthen our capacity to rapidly shift gears and think and act constructively. Mindfulness increases awareness of our inter inherent interdependency with other people and the natural environment, and of values that enhance human dignity rather than subordinate people, animals, and nature to the cravings for more material wealth and power. As we awaken to our responsibility to follow the path described by the Dharma to help us protect and restore the planet and its inhabitants, we may feel awed by the immensity of the challenge. We should take heart, however, in the power of collective action. Buddhists can join with others in their sanghas, and our sanghas can join hands and hearts with other religious and spiritual traditions, as well as secular movements focused on social change. In this way, we will support each other as we make the necessary shift in perspectives, lifestyles, and economic and institutional systems required to reduce climate change to manageable levels. History shows that with concerted, concerted unified, collective effort, changes that at one time seemed impossible have time and again come to pass. When we come together to celebrate our love for the natural world and all of the beings that inhabit it, and when we take a stand to counter the forces of craving, aversion, and delusion, we will reclaim our inner stability and strength and live closer to the truth, closer to the Dharma. Together we can seek to ensure that our descendants and fellow species inherit a livable planet. Individually and collectively, we will be honoring the great legacy of the Dharma and fulfill our heart's deepest wish to serve and to protect. What I'd like to do is just have you now, if you would, just spend a moment reflecting on what's going on inside you after you hear that statement. You might want to close your eyes. You don't have to. And if you'd like to share anything, feel free to do that, but just become aware of what's happening inside you. Anybody would like to share their thoughts, feelings at this point? Well, the part of my body that I associate with fear and anxiety is quite active <laughs> at the moment. Um, but my heart is very touched by the optimism <coughs> in the statement that, that um, it is possible through collective action to do something about this. And then my mind is thinking of the immensity of this task. Um, on, on a personal level, I have a great deal of optimism that individual people can do things. It's the, the way that the 
the craving and those impulses towards material wealth and power have been institutionalized, mm -hmm. particularly here in the United States. Mm -hmm. I don't think this is true worldwide, but our economy is driven by consumer spending. 70% of our, of our economy is dependent upon consumer spending. And as you read the popular press about how do we come out of this recession, it's do everything you can to get money into the hands of people so they can spend it and spend it and spend it. And that is, that is institutionalized to such an extent I'm not sure how we go about reversing that. On a personal level, yeah, I can understand it, but from the institutional level, it seems like an enormous challenge. Thank you. Let me address some of those issues, but let's first hear from others. Anyone else want to share anything? I guess one of the things I uh, struggle with is um, because the the child of desire, aversion, delusion, capitalism is is such an incredible driver, um, but means different things in different places. You know, we are for for the poverty and everything else that exists in the United States. We're we're a very wealthy country still. We have the ability to survive maybe in other ways and have other possibilities, yet uh, looking at other parts of the country that are completely dependent upon um, fossil fuels, looking at the Middle East economies, things like that, that, that um, the changes that we're talking about, you know, are, are um, un unless there's solutions to ameliorate the suffering that those changes are going to yes. bring to other places, there's not going to be a reason for those places to affect change, um, there, because there's no alternative. Uh, so, so I am less heartened, I guess. I'm heartened by the idea that the mindfulness we can bring to this can affect change, but that is tempered by the understanding that so many other parts of the world do not have the ability to make the kind of change that we do, do not have the potential for alternatives that we have here. And the other thing that comes to mind is that um, if we don't take it to the streets, it's not going to happen. That, that the mindfulness and everything else has to be accompanied by a very large scale action to affect the kind of change, you know, to, to um, threaten the status quo enough to, um, to promote the change. Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else? of asking how many people here have one child, how many have two, how many have three, how many have grandchildren. That's the, if you don't deal with that, I don't, I don't think this other stuff is going to work. And that's very hard to deal with. You almost have to have a Department of Population Control and you can have you know, one kid or whatever. I mean, the population of the Earth has gone from, I don't know, a billion or something back in the 50s to 8 billion now. And now everybody wants fancy cars and stuff, so you, you, you got to deal with that part. Buying a Prius and uh, recycling is not going to get it. And I don't know about the other stuff. So anyway, right. the whole, my question is the whole population chunk. Right. That, that, that always seems to be ignored by a lot of people who talk about this, and I think it's like the main thing. Thank you. 
you know, you never know what you hear on the news if it's true or not. But you know, do do other countries that have huge populations do do they do they think it's a problem climate change? And and I have concern. Um, you know, even if we change our nation, which is big, if how how I don't know. It, it seems like a, kind of a big job. <laughs> Thank you for summarizing it in very <laughs> short sentences, right, right on target. Well, let me, let me try to respond to some of this and then tell you why I have some hope. Uh, first of all, population is uh, a part of that, but if we were all living at the uh, consumption level of very undeveloped nations, we wouldn't have this problem. Now, we don't want to do that. Uh, there's an old uh, multiplication way of looking at this is that population times consumption times technology is the, is the issue. So each affects the others. If we had this population but not the technological capacity to turn so many material wealth, material resources into products and use them, uh, and all of which requires energy, all of which is now predominantly fossil fuel energy, we wouldn't have that as well as if we weren't consuming as much. So there's really three issues there. Um, uh, and I think we can actually address the, the, the issue even with our population that we have. Um, and let me give you a quick example. I know we don't have a lot of time left, but I want to leave you with some optimistic views. Um, so my wife and I, uh, uh, that worked up, 10 years ago bought a sort of a ramshackle house. I live in Eugene, Oregon. Um, and we, uh, because of the work I do and she does, um, we decided we were going to try to see if we could reduce our emissions to close to zero. So I spent uh, the uh, first uh, three years on my hands and knees, you know, doing uh, 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 more insulation and putting in new windows and doing all sorts of stuff that I really didn't know how to do. But uh, uh, then, then we brought somebody in to fix all my mistakes um, <laughs> and, uh, uh, and brought our <clears throat> the energy use based on the records we had from the previous owners down about 30%. Okay, then we realized we, we've been doing a lot of stuff, buying a lot of things, using a lot of things just to make life easier for us. Gadgets, right? Uh, and we went through the house and we said, what do we really need? And we found out we had, not only do we have a whole bunch of gadgets, most of them electronic gizmos of some kinds that we didn't need, but most of them were still plugged in on something. And we call them energy vampires. They're using energy even when they're not being when they're not on. So we unplugged all this stuff. If we, if we, we had a number of rooms where we had uh, lights and other things that we turn on once a week, we just unplugged them all. And then we got rid of half of it. They, they use energy when they're plugged in? Yes, because it's going around. Uh, the energy vampires, especially computers and TVs and, and all these other kind of electronic gizmos. Um, and that cut another 15% of our energy use. We actually found a way to cut in our home, now we, uh, energy use by about 60% without changing our lifestyle at all. I did a lot of scraped knees, you know, but uh, other than that. Then we put up a solar system um, on our house. We have good solar access and we own our house, okay? If you're a renter or you don't have good solar access, my, and part with a solar PV system, creating our own energy, and a solar hot water system. We, most, we make most of our hot water for showers, et cetera, with the sun. And we are basically completely off the grid, okay? Again, we own the house. It's a good solar. We bought the house specifically because it had good access to the sun, meaning there's no buildings in the way, no trees in the way, et cetera. Uh, so we could do it. And I had the commitment. 
to do that because of the work I did. So it, take, it took a, an investment of resources. But if, uh, we have also been longtime vegetarians, uh, mostly because it wasn't because of climate change. It was because my wife is a veterinarian. And she said, I could not take life and save life. And this was 35 years ago when we got married. Um, so we, then we thought, oh, that really worked for climate change, too. That was good. Uh, we hadn't thought about it at the time. So we've actually reduced our emissions what, from what we can calculate by about 90%, not completely because I travel. Okay? Uh, came down here, and I drove a, a fossil fuel car to Spirit Rock. Uh, but we buy offsets for that with credible offset places where I know if we're giving some money to somebody, they're going to invest it in a, a solar system or something. Uh, and we'll, we'll try to, to travel as, as least as we can. So that's just us. So I think not everybody has that capacity. Not everybody has those resources. Um, but I think we can go a long way there. But you're absolutely right. We also must deal, mostly importantly, we must deal with the systemic issues. Uh, and that requires that first of, we start to get centered in what the problem is and that there are solutions. And then we join together with the rest of the people in your sanghas to work in your communities and others to really push for dramatic social change. And that is exactly what's going to happen. It is, uh, there, this debate about if climate change is happening, et cetera, is much less occurring in Europe, in other countries. Um, I've spent quite a bit of time working with organizations over there. They get it for the most part. There's a little bit of pushback, and every now and then it goes more and less. It's a little bit more now in England and for, for the last uh, 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 government. But um, for the most part, they're all dealing. But there, we, do, we do have some structural issues in, in, in the way that need to be addressed. But if we get out there and demand a change, and let me just say this as bluntly as I can, we have no choice. Yes, it's true that there are places that might not believe that they have any advantage to making the shift uh, because they're selling fossil fuels, et cetera. But we don't have any choice. We have to, as this statement says, and I think all the Dharma teacher believe, we have to do whatever is necessary at whatever cost to make the changes needed to prevent runaway climate change. There are no sales of fossil fuels in a society with runaway climate change. There's no profits to be made. Um, we have to understand that. We, just, we, we, we have to sort of get into the, the space of what that world will look like. Nobody's going to be thinking about profits then. We're going to be thinking about protecting ourselves and, and doing all those kinds of things that, that people do in, in those kind of chaotic situations. So we have to prevent that from happening. Uh, now, I will say that the, uh, I've been working with the Obama administration somewhat. We helped them develop their climate plan. The president released a climate plan in July. Uh, it's got some good things in it. It's not an not a earth shaker, but it's, a, it's the first time a president has actually done something uh, on climate change. <clears throat> That's clear and direct. He's made it a priority. Um, I think if you start pushing on your local congressmen, your elected officials, uh, as a collective that work together on this. Um, uh, and then on the Obama administration and on the next president and the next Congress, whatever, I think there's a real chance for change. What I, what I do see from a technological perspective is we have most of the technologies we need now, right now, to reduce emissions and climate change to manageable levels. It is a political and social and 
dharma problem, if you will, cognitive problem, a mental problem that's mostly in the way. We, we don't realize that. We think, oh, it, it's outside of it. But we have the technologies. We can do this. We just have to scale it up at, at the level very, very quickly. And a lot of folks are going to lose out when we scale that up who are invested in other sources of, of, of energy, et cetera. And that's what we have to now overcome. So I'm, I'm actually very optimistic. I think there's some bumpy times ahead. But uh, I, think, I think we will reduce climate change to manageable levels. There'll be some bumps and bruises along the way. But it requires that we all engage now and all start now. So engage in your own life, in your own household. Uh, engage in your schools where your kids work and, or play, et cetera. Uh, engage in your communities <clears throat> and work together uh, join groups, uh, whatever you, you feel comfortable with, to engage on the social and political side, too. And I think we can make change. But be aware of what's happening and the risks that it, uh, exist if we don't act. Are there any websites that you could recommend that would give legitimate scientific um, updates and, and information as to what we can do or... From a world sure. Uh, there, there's a lot of them out there. That, um, if you want to know the science, you might want to get on the uh, University of Columbia, uh, Columbia University's website, James Hansen's <laughs> website. There's a, 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 he's just retired. But I think if, if look for government websites. Uh, they tend to be more conservative because they're trying to be careful, but they usually have consequently the really credible uh, information. Um, I'm sure the city of San Francisco and others might have some good sites uh, that you look at your local government site. I'll say one other quick thing, and I'd like to sort of end with a loving kindness meditation, if that's possible. Mm -hmm. um, that uh, we've, my organization has started a program that we call the Transformational Resilience Program. And that is to say uh, we're trying to help people, individuals, groups and organizations learn how to use the suffering that climate change is causing for them and for others as a catalyst to rethink and change our assumptions, our beliefs, our, our behaviors. Uh, and we've launched the program in Oakland. Uh, and I think, uh, in fact, we're having it. That's why I'm in the Bay Area this week. We're having some meetings with, with folks there to sort of plan that out. It'll be a series of workshops where we're, we're going to be giving folks or training folks and offering skills to, to learn how to cope with these kinds of traumas and stresses, these kinds of suffering, and use them as catalysts for personal growth and collective growth. And that's really what I think, uh, ironically, climate change can give us. So in the midst of this, these impacts we're going to see, we can use this as an opportunity to grow ourselves and grow as a, uh, as a society. Uh, and, uh, and that's why I'm so optimistic. So if anybody's interested, once the city of Oakland and others announce that, city of San Francisco may also participate. I know Berkeley has been talking about it. These are through the uh, Oakland and Berkeley Climate Action Coalitions, uh, the city of San Francisco's uh, energy office and environment office. Um, so there are activities up here. And, and actually, all three, all the local governments here have really been doing a lot of good work on, on climate uh, change and others and really trying to make a difference. But they haven't quite got to the structural changes yet. It's been more the individual. I have a question. Is there any high, um, uh, uh, well-known 
governmental figure at this point who's interested in this, or someone like uh, uh, Bill Gates or Warren Buffett, or someone who could say has that media access to say, listen. I get it, and you know, if Warren Buffett says something, people listen. You know, uh, you know, um, for whatever reasons we think about that. But uh, what I was thinking of some way, um, uh, Al Gore was very interested in this. Where is Al Gore these days in terms of what's he doing about this? Right. Well, that's a very good question. Thank you. Um, there, uh, Al Gore got a Nobel Prize for the work he did on this, but also got a tremendous amount of pushback. Um, and uh, you know, we're a very polarized society now, and, and uh, we, we at least we appear to be polarized. I don't actually think we are that polarized personally, but uh, the, the political parties are polarized for sure. Uh, and so he got the pushback on that. Um, uh, so. Uh, there's a lot of folks talking about this issue. I don't know if Warren Buffett has said anything. Um, I think a lot of, if you actually look behind the scenes, we actually, my organization with other staff are working with a lot of private companies. And boy, there's a lot, that's one of the reasons I'm optimistic. There is a lot going on in the private sector, even large corporations, that they don't talk about publicly because of the, pu the political tension. Uh, I'll, I'll give one example, Nike. Uh, which is an Oregon company, which is, uh, we've been working with them. They went through and looked at their entire value chain that we helped, we had grad students who did the evaluation with them. Where are we, where, what are our risks of climate change and where are we contributing to it? And the bottom line after a year-long process is they made a commitment to basically get off of fossil fuels. They have not announced that publicly, you won't find it on their website, but they are disinvesting in fossil fuels at every sec sector of their value chain. Uh, and they're bringing manufacturing back to the U.S. To, tra to cut transportation costs and other sorts of things, despite the fact that that was the business model that set up Nike, which was to go overseas and use cheap labor. Um, so, uh, and they're just one example. Uh, so I think if we can create the political climate that allows, that, that sort of takes away a little bit of the tension that these companies feel about going public, you'll see a whole bunch more that might be willing to step forward and say things. Be a fantastic thing because Nike has their slogan, "Just do it." Right. You know, <laughs> yeah. it would be it would be very nice if they came out. Can you say something about how we compare to China in our mission? Right. You're talking a lot about the United States. Right. Uh, good question. Um, on a per capita basis, each of us we are way beyond where China is. But on a aggregate basis. China's now ahead. Uh, and that's because they have, they, what they've done is in order to, and, but let me also say that most of the, no, I don't know the exact number, I would say better than 50%, I'm going to guess it's closer to 60 to 70% of the emissions generated in China are to generate products for us. In other words, we've simply pushed our emissions over there because of the globalization of the economy. And then we yell at them and they say, well, you know, we're not going to do our part unless you do your part. Well, but wait a second. That's us too. And Europe and other Western nations. Um, so, uh, uh, so they ha but they are using very dirty coal to gear up and manufacture the products that there's a market for here. Um, so on an aggregate basis, because it's so dirty, their fossil fuels, et cetera, 
they actually em are emitting more greenhouse gases than the U.S. right now. But that's coming from some very concentrated sources. So when you look at the individual level, and of course they have a whole lot more people than we have, their per capita emissions are very much lower. But again, you have to realize, so the, the U.S., the, the Obama administration said, well, emissions have gone down 17% in the U.S. in the last couple of years. And that's true if you just quantify domestic emissions, um, and most of that actually is, they claim otherwise, but from what I can tell, it's mostly due to the economy. And it doesn't quant, and, but uh, that is the status, but also it doesn't look at uh, the, the consumption-related emissions. And you do that, I'm going to guess it went up. I would suggest you, you look at, you, you use your mindfulness to really think about, do I really need this product anyhow? Am I just craving for something, et cetera? So first, buy less stuff. But if you do buy it, the more you can buy it locally, unpackaged, completely reusable or recyclable, the better, okay? Not possible to do it all along, but the more you can do that and the more you can pressure the place you're going to, the retailer, whatever, say, I, I, I want to buy some, but I'm not going to buy it if you have it wrapped in plastic. Every time you wrap it in plastic, what plastic? Does anybody know what plastic is? It's oil. Plastic bags, you know, you put your fruit in, your you're taking your, your fruit home in oil, a, you know, a, a, a version of it. So think about that. So again, it's our first, it starts with our own mindfulness. What are we doing and why can we become mindful of that? Uh, and then we can make better decisions. I saw. How much of an impact can we um, really make from the uh, energy vampires by unplugging things and then replugging? Um, just like even the lights around this room, you know, if we unplug them, are we charging more by replugging them? Or what no. about computers and offices and so on? Well, it certainly depends. Good question. Thank you. It depends on each person and each household and, you know, organ, you know building, et cetera. But there's usually, there's, it's the old days, the computers, they said you leave them on, you use more to charge them up. Not anymore. But so the more you can unplug, the more you're going to save. Uh, and the less you use, obviously, the more you will save. Um, but just a good example of a way we can make progress. And when I first moved to Oregon in 1974, we had a governor, Tom McCall, uh, some people obviously know him, who was, people loved him. He was a Republican, uh, and people loved him. And we had a, a water shortage one year, a drought, uh, and he said, we're going to be short of energy because of the hydro system. So he, he said, he ordered, issued an executive order to all the public agencies in the state to turn off their lights at night. And then he ordered downtown Portland and others to turn off their lights. And suddenly, things went dark. And we saved a tremendous amount of energy, and he was beloved for doing it. Okay? Uh, and so think about all the lights that are on all the time in San Francisco and all these, if we just even cut 30 to 40% of it, so much of it is frivolous and wasted. Just cutting out the frivolous use of energy and wasted energy gets us a long, long way without any change in lifestyle, except more mindfulness. I'm aware that in Marin we uh, 
put about 64, 64 million pounds of food waste into the landfill every year, and I, I understand that that creates methane. And so I'm wondering, of the greenhouse gases, what percentage of the greenhouse gases are methane? How big of a problem is, is methane, of what you're speaking Good question. Thank you. Methane is a, very, is, a, is a smaller contributor than carbon dioxide to climate change, but it's a much more powerful greenhouse gas. Uh, so it lasts longer and has a bigger effect. Uh, and uh, consequently, uh, and methane is caused by the breakdown of organic material, like compost. That's also one of the concerns climate scientists have when uh, the Arctic melts, it, uh, as it is, it, um, it it more the vegetation that's been covered by ice and snow is now released, and it will break down and release more methane. So we get a feedback loop goes that makes it worse. Uh, that's what we mean by runaway climate change. We've reached the point where some other things kick in that we can no longer control. So yes, the more we can, at a minimum, reuse that that stuff for our gardens or whatever, uh, and or capture the methane and reuse it as a, you know, a regular fuel, uh, the better off we're going to be. Is there any movement um, in the construction industry? Are there any legislation that where any new construction, if the location is okay to put solar on that? I mean, why isn't any, you know, why, why aren't all new homes built with solar? So there's the political pressure that we need, right? Exactly. Uh, you, please talk to your city councils, your county commissioners, your building departments, et cetera, on that very issue. That's a very good question. If you have solar access, uh, if there is solar access and good solar, uh, even if it's not, I live in Oregon, right? It rains all the time, at least it used to. Um, and uh, <laughs> uh, we're in the same drought you're in here, by the way. So um, we, the, the, the historic low of uh, moisture, which is very unusual for the west side of the Pacific Northwest. But uh, Germany is the leading European country with solar. And they're pretty much like Oregon. They're cloudy all the time. So it works even then. Not as good as it would be in, in uh, you know, Arizona. Um, but actually, the way the systems work now, when, when the solar systems get too hot, they actually don't work as well. So they're almost not as good in Arizona as they are in other places where it's a little cooler. Our technologies are catching up. But yes, I think my sense is uh, every building should be built with solar uh, or collective solar systems might even be a better option. We've promoted that, uh, community solar we call it. So you don't have to invest in your own solar system. You can buy a share in or your local utility can put it up and you just get your energy from that, but it's a larger system. Maybe it's on the top of a shopping center somewhere, you know, with a whole bunch of people getting their, their solar from that. So there's lots of different ways. It doesn't have to be your own individual solar system. So I'm sitting here looking at these lights that are on. And, <laughs> and it feels kind of like the elephant in the living room. I mean, it's nice yeah. to have them. The two lights behind are usually on on Wednesday mornings. And yeah. It's so just, we'll so we'll we'll stop on the way out and talk to Kika and see if we can't get it all turned out. Maybe actually, Nancy, you'll do it on the way out since I I can't, but I'll deputize you to tell her that we had this meeting here this morning, and we we took a vote. How many people want to turn them off? Okay. <laughs> so, I think she's listening. Okay, Kika, the lights go off. <laughs> 
So it, it's the how much you use, but also the kind of lights. Check those out too. Are they the most energy efficient? Listen, I, I, I'm aware that it gets a little tense when it's after 11 because some people need to be someplace else. So uh, I, uh, first of all, we should mention your book, From oh. Me to We, that you could read more about. Uh, I'm sorry we don't have more in our... Uh, ah, Kika. So we made a decision. So it's very nice of you to come in. I'm sorry, it wasn't directed at you, of course. Uh, we've been having this morning on climate change. And one of the things that we all are excited about doing is going home and unplugging everything that we don't need. And we don't need all these lights on all the time. And uh, or these other big enough lights when we have enough lights in the room. So is there a way to off the, uh, the uh, not only the lights, lights, the decorative lights? Yeah. Good. <laughs> Good. So we'll turn them off just in time for us to sit for a little two seconds. Okay, two seconds sit. Yeah. You know, Kika, if you will put a, an email out to the establishment, the, the teachers' council, and tell them we had this very rousing meeting about climate change commitment. And that uh, they were beautiful at Christmas time, and they can hang there until Christmas, and then don't have to take them down. We'll light them next Christmas, but that we all took a vote off. And that's what we decided to do. And that's what we decided to do. And we suggest that everybody, join. all the teachers of the teachers' council, have signed their their commitment to do this. So we're just reminding them that this is a big waste. So thanks. <laughs> Right. Do you want, it's okay to do a loving kindness? Please, two seconds. <laughs> okay, well, we won't say loving kindness. <laughs> 60 seconds. 60 seconds. Why don't we just uh, end by just uh, closing your eyes, if you would. You don't have to, but uh, and just uh, take a moment uh, to follow your breath, to sort of pay attention to it. And as you do that, give thanks to the processes going on around the earth that you actually can't see often and are not aware of, but that are giving you life right now. All these complex interactions occurring in the oceans and the trees, just give thanks to all of that for allowing you to live. And then give thanks to yourself for your willingness to become aware of these issues maybe let's just close with a very short loving-kindness meditation. Say to yourself, may I live in safety? May I live in peace? May I be happy? May I be healthy? May I live with ease? And you can repeat those to yourself just a few times. May I live safely. May I live in peace. May I be happy. May I be healthy. May I live with ease. And may I continually marvel in the earth that has given me life.
And when you're ready, you can come back to the group and open your eyes. Thank you all. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.